Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you even now and we confess that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. So even now, as we read your word, as we, as we, as we listen to the preaching of your word, we pray that you would be at work, that you would help us, aid us to understand, to take to heart, to apply, and to live in light of your word. Oh, we need you so desperately in every part. And we pray that even now, by the power of your spirit, you would supply all that we need in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I ask that you would remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning, we uh, continue in our regular sermon series in the book of Romans, and we come to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Romans seven fourteen through 25. Please listen now as I read, for this is the very word of God. The apostle Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But the very thing I hate, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. May the Lord bless to our hearts and minds the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, imagine for a moment that you've purchased a very nice device of some sort. Very valuable. Very complicated. And much to your chagrin, it is not working as you hoped. You've been trying a particular fix over and over, but it, it doesn't seem to be working any better. So you take it into a master technician to have him analyze it. You tell him the problem. You tell him what you've been doing, and you anxiously await his response. Now imagine for a moment, since this is a thought exercise, uh, imagine the potential range of responses you might receive. Uh, First, imagine that he tells you your expectations are way too high and unrealistic. You, You should get used to it not working and learn to be comfortable with that. Just, Just enjoy it. Or second, he imagine he says, yeah, it's, it's not working as it's supposed to, but I don't have any other solutions other than what you're already doing. So I guess you just have to try harder and do it better. Or third, imagine he says, well, this problem is, is very uncharacteristic of this device. 
In fact, these kinds of problems, they just don't happen with this device. So it makes me wonder if you actually have a genuine device. Perhaps you have a counterfeit. Perhaps you've been deceived or tricked into when, in buying this device because if you had the real deal, this just wouldn't happen. Or finally, imagine that he says, don't worry. This problem is very common. In fact, in varying degrees, without exception, it is present in every single device. But, he adds, the problem can and must most definitely be addressed. However, he adds, um, what you're currently doing is not the answer. But fear not, there is an answer that will fix the device. It will fix it gradually, steadily, completely, and ultimately. That's a pretty big range of responses for your troublesome device, right? It would make a big difference which one of those responses you actually received. Now, you say to yourself, why are we engaging in this little thought experiment? Well, I would suggest it's it's because in some sense, this is what every Christian experiences with our own lives. Our Christian lives are eternally valuable, rather complicated. And I think most of us would admit, at at some level, they don't work exactly the way they're supposed to. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say that each and every believer here today, every believer listening to this broadcast, you have experienced some frustration in your Christian life. There have been things you didn't want to do because you knew they were wrong. But you did them anyway. And then you hated the fact that you had done that. And then despite hating that outcome, at some point you did it again. And maybe you tried harder the next time around. Maybe you said to yourself, no, 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 really, this time, don't do it. Don't covet Your neighbor's stuff, for example. Don't get sinfully angry at someone else. Don't look at a woman with lustful intent. Don't think those thoughts. Don't engage in those behaviors. Just don't, don't, don't. And then you did it again. So you're frustrated. Because as a Christian, you know that you don't work the way you're supposed to. So in your frustration, you you take your life to a pastoral technician. Or maybe a whole series of pastoral technicians. You say, here, check me out. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what I need to do. The first one says, well, godliness? Yeah, that's a lot to expect in this life. That's not going to happen. You should just get comfortable with your sin, right? Don't worry about it. Enjoy it. Call it grace. (laughs) The next one says, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you should try harder. Think a little more about what you're not supposed to do and then try harder not to do it. A few more rules. A little more self-discipline. Sorry, that's all I've got. 
The next one says, wow, you're still struggling with sin? And you say you're a Christian. I don't think so. Christians aren't supposed to have those kinds of struggles. Maybe you're not a real Christian. Have you ever thought of that? So now you're really frustrated. So you decide to take your life to a master pastoral technician, none other than the Apostle Paul. And you say, Paul, here's my life, right? Here's what I've been doing. What do you think? And what Paul proceeds to give you is the book of Romans. Now first, as we've seen, Paul, Paul reminds you something of the nature of your salvation. He, he tells you why you needed to be saved in the first place. It's because of your sin and the judgment and divine wrath that your sin deserves. Then he reminds you how you were saved, not by your own works or your religiosity, but only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And now he turns to your life as a Christian. How you are supposed to live now that you are saved. And right out of the gate, what we've seen is that Paul dismisses the idea that as a Christian, you you should just get comfortable walking in your sin. He says, by no means to that. After all, you've died to sin through your union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So you cannot, must not, will not continue to live in habitual unrepentant sin. We say, okay, then if I'm not to walk in lawlessness, should I live by the law? Should the law of God now serve as the source and substance of my Christian life? Will the law provide me now with the the power to live as a faithful Christian? And Paul, as we've seen, has given us an initial answer. And the answer is no. No, the law cannot and does not work this way. In fact, Paul has said, as a Christian, united to Christ in his death and resurrection, we're not only dead to sin, but we've also died to the law. But this is a bit confusing. You say, well, wait, Paul, I thought... I thought the law was good, right? I mean, you're not saying the law is in the same category as sin, are you? That we've died to sin and we've died to the law, so they're like the same? Paul says, no, 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 no. The law is not sin by no means. But, he instructs us, in order to live the Christian life fruitfully, you have to understand what the law does and what the law does cannot do. Now last week in at chapter 7 verses 6 through 13, we saw Paul explain what the law does. Paul explained that the law indeed has a righteous ministry in our lives, speaking in the first person about his experience before he became a Christian, Paul tells us that the law had had a ministry of instruction in which it it, it tells us what sin is. It has a ministry, you might say, of instigation in which the law provokes and arouses sin that's already in our lives so that our sin is stirred up and expressed all the more openly. And together this produces a ministry of illumination in which sin is fully revealed and exposed to be sinful beyond measure. 
So this is what the law does, Paul says. It instructs, it instigates, it illuminates us as to the true character and nature of our sin. And this drives us then to Jesus Christ in order that we might be saved from our sin. But now we ask, okay, so what about our life now that we are Christians? I mean, the law couldn't justify us and make us Christians. We get that. But now that we are Christians, is the law to be the primary instrument of our sanctification? Well, I believe that is what Paul is addressing here in Romans seven fourteen through 25. Now we need to be clear from the outset. There have been, there continue to be lots of different opinions, lots of debates about what exactly Paul is talking about here in verses 14 through 25. Many scholars throughout the centuries, very good and faithful scholars, have argued that here in these verses, Paul is continuing to talk about his pre-Christian experience. They argue that, that Paul is conveying here the frustration he experienced before he was regenerated, before he was converted, before he became a Christian. And the argument for this interpretation is that Paul here in these verses uses language that they say could just not be true of a Christian. Language like, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. But while I respect men who have this position, and women, uh, what I'm going to argue this morning is that I, I think Paul is actually describing his experience as a Christian in order to make the full case of what the law cannot do in the Christian life. While the law has a legitimate ministry in instructing us into the, as, the, as to the true nature of sin, in instigating the fuller expression of our sin, in illuminating the depth and depravity of our sin, what the law cannot do is eliminate sin from our lives. And it cannot lead us into ultimate victory over sin, even as Christians. And that, I think, is Paul's ultimate purpose here in these verses. To see this purpose worked out, we'll consider Paul's words here in four parts. First, we see in verses 14 through 16 that Paul is making a contrast. He's revealing a confusion and he's providing a confirmation. First, Paul makes a contrast. His initial contrast is between the law of God, which he says is spiritual, and himself, which he describes as of the flesh sold under sin. Now, when Paul just says that the law is spiritual, most scholars interpret this to to refer to the divine origin and character of the law of God. Paul is saying the law of God comes from God himself. He spoke it. He breathed it out. It's inspired by him. The law is not just a useful legal code coming from a a wise man like Moses. No, the law proceeds from the very mouth of God. This is the law's origin, and therefore the law's character is that it's good and right. The law conforms to the holy character of God because God spoke it. 
It shows us the true way of God's righteousness in thought and word and deed. This spiritual law is then contrasted with Paul's identity as one who is of the flesh sold under sin. Now, many have interpreted interpreted this phrase to say Paul is continuing to talk about his pre-Christian identity, right? Because Christians are not of the flesh. They are not sold under sin. But I think there are a couple of key considerations that would call that interpretation into question. First, you'll notice that Paul makes a dramatic, grammatical transition here in verse 14. From speaking in the past tense, which he's been doing essentially for the last 13 verses, to speaking in the present tense, which he's going to do for the rest of the chapter. Now, this alone would seem to suggest that Paul is transitioning from who he was before he became a Christian to who he now is as a Christian. But but another key consideration, which I think is even more conclusive, is that elsewhere in his writing, Paul clearly speaks of Christians being regenerated, being new in Christ, but still being of the flesh. I think we see a clear example of this in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that he addressed the Corinthians as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And even though he addresses them as Christians, he says just a verse later, you're still of the flesh. It's exactly the same words Paul uses here in Romans 7. So Paul clearly seems to have a category in his mind of Christians being in Christ yet still of the flesh. But but we ask, well, how can that be so, right? Well, Paul has already stated in chapter 6 that when we believe in Christ, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. By faith, this is real. And, And in this union, Paul says, our old self is crucified with Christ. So that we, that is our old selves, are put to death and we are then given the gift of a new self. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are a new creation. For now the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is given to us as our own life. So that now Paul can say, it's as he says in Galatians 2, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And yet, what Paul makes clear is that this new self, this new creation in Christ, now lives in one who is still of the flesh. Which means that even as Christians, we are still corrupted by sin. We still have sin dwelling within us. And sin will continue to be present in us throughout this life. So in a very real sense, even though we are new in Christ, we are still of the flesh, sold under sin. That is, we have sin indwelling within us, in the whole of us, in every part of us. I think the Westminster Confession of Faith faithfully states it this way. This is chapter 13, 2. The confession says sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises 
a continual and irreconcilable war. So here in this verse, Paul is pointing out that because we as Christians still have indwelling sin within us and throughout us, there is a great contrast between the law of God, which is spiritual, it's from God, and it is therefore godly, and there's a contrast between that and our life of the flesh, which is sold under sin. The reality of this contrast then leads Paul to a certain confusion. There's a confusion in Paul's own thinking in which he says, because of this contrast, he doesn't understand his own actions. He says, I do not do what I want, but the very thing, I do the very thing that I hate. Now, this is the first, I think, of many indications in our text that Paul is speaking about himself as a believer because he says he actually wants to do good and he hates sinful behavior. And this desire for godliness and this hatred of sin, it is only truly present in the life of a believer who is, in fact, a new creation with the new self of Christ dwelling in them. But this contrast leads Paul into a state of frustrating confusion. He doesn't do the good he wants to do. He does the sinful things that he hates, and he doesn't understand his own actions. And this contrast between the spiritual law of God and the fleshly state of his own behavior leads Paul not only into confusion about his own behavior, but it leads him ultimately to a confirmation. The confirmation is that Paul knows that the law of God is in fact good. This contrast in his, in his life and its resulting confusion regarding his own behavior confirms for him that the problem is not the law itself, but his own sin. It is confirmed to him now that the law is spiritual and the law is good, but he is of the flesh filled with indwelling sin. And what we see then is that this initial section of contrast, confusion, and confirmation leads into our second section, which we see in verses 17 through 20, in which Paul takes us, in essence, on another round of contrast, conflict, and confirmation. Paul here highlights for us another key contrast, but this time the contrast is not between the law of God and his flesh. It is between his core identity, which I will argue is his core identity in Christ, the identity of his new self on the one hand and his flesh on the other. You see, having confirmed that the law of God is good, Paul then proceeds to say, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And what Paul is doing here in these verses is contrasting his I, his personal pronoun, with his flesh. The I here in these verses, as commentator John Murray describes it, is that which is most determinative of his personality. It is his inmost being which is most central to his will and affections. And what we see in this section is that Paul's I, 
his core self, if you will, he says it is not the source of his sin, verse 17. He says it desires to do what is right, verse 18. It wants to do good and does not want to do what is evil, verses 19 and 20. And again, I want to reiterate this, that such a core identity filled with such holy desires, it can only exist, it can only result as the result of regeneration and salvation. This can only be the result of having been made new in Christ, being given the new self, possessing, as Paul says in Philippians 2, the very mind of Christ, which is given to us in Christ. This is who Paul is now as a Christian at at his most fundamental level. This is his I. And yet we see once again that this new identity lives in the old person. And particularly it lives in the old body where the presence of indwelling sin for Paul is particularly manifest. Paul often says sin dwells in particular in our members, the organs of our physical body. So that even though our old self has been crucified with Christ, our new self is now living in our old bodies, which are corrupted in every part, sin dwelling in all our members, so that we, our new selves, remain in the presence of the corrupting power of sin throughout this life. And this is most keenly evidenced by the fact that our bodies decay. And they die under the weight of sin. And what results in is the contrast here then between our core new selves in Christ and our flesh, which is, again, particularly manifested in indwelling sin, which resides in our members. This core self, this I in Christ, wants what is right and good. It wants to shun evil, but our flesh still filled with indwelling sin, yearns for acts of sin, ends up thwarting our godly desires as we pursue the opposite. And this contrast produces an inner conflict, an irreconcilable war, as the confession of faith says, a war between the spirit and the flesh. And this leads to another confirmation that Paul states in verse 20. Paul says that this inner conflict not only confirms that the law is good, but it confirms that it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. That's important to see here. Paul is not trying to distance himself from his sin so as to absolve him of responsibility or accountability for that sin. He's simply saying this. This indwelling sin, which is his own sin, it is none other, is not flowing from the new life, the new self, the new I that is in union with Christ. But rather the sin is flowing from his old flesh. So these contrasts then between the law and Paul's flesh and between his new self and his flesh, 
leads to our third section, verses 21 through 25, in which Paul summarizes this state of being with what I call here the law of dueling laws. Paul says in verse 21, so I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul here seems to be using law as a kind of general principle. And what he's saying here is the general principle is this, that his desire to do what is right is always closely connected to the nearness of evil in his very being. And this general principle is then unpacked because Paul says that his inner being, his core self, his new self in Christ, it delights in the law of God. Now again, this could only be true of a Christian who's been made new in Christ. And we see then Paul bringing together the first two sections by now explicitly saying that the law of God, which was contrasted with his flesh in the first section, and the new self, which was contrasted with his flesh in the second section, they are actually the law and his new self in heartfelt and delightful agreement with one another. His new self delights in the law of God. It delights in the moral law, the moral commandments given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. But in his flesh, he says, there's another law at work. This is a law, it's a principle of sin and rebellion that wages war against the law of his mind, which is the desires of his new self, which, which delights in the law of God. And this other law leads him into captivity to the law of sin that dwells in his members, the organs of his physical body. And this law of dueling laws would seem in and of itself to leave Paul at a kind of impasse. That there's this kind of perpetual conflict between the law of his mind, the desires of his new self, which delights in the law of God, and the law of sin, which is the desires of his flesh, which wants to disobey the law of God. And this law of dueling laws, this this frustration, Paul says, is present in the Christian life. And Paul says, it's really frustrating. So frustrating that he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And I think when Paul uses this phrase, this body of death, he's saying he longs to be delivered from the condition of being of the flesh, which affects his whole being, but it is particularly and most acutely manifested in the presence of indwelling sin in the members of his physical body which are openly subject to the ravaging effects of sin because we continue to decay unto death. And as we decay unto death, we have yearnings and cravings that are set against the holy desires of the new self. So Paul says, this is the lay of the land. So now you understand the problem in the Christian life. And you say, Yes, that's what I've been experiencing. But that leads us then to the greatest question. Okay, Paul, how can we be delivered from it? Paul's question, who will save us from this body of death? 
And, and Paul here wants us to be very clear. In fact, I think this is the main point of chapter 7, that the law of God can't do this. The law is spiritual. The law is good. The law is a source of delight in the inner being of the believer, and the believer rightly yearns to obey it. But by God's own design, the law does not have the power to overcome the flesh. The law does not have the power to eradicate indwelling sin and to drive out sinful desires. In and of itself, the law continues to instruct and instigate and illumine believers to the true nature of sin, just like it did for unbelievers. But it does not, for indeed it cannot produce the life that it extols. Scholar Douglas Moo writes on this passage, and I'll just say in full disclosure, I disagree with Moo on a lot of ways to interpret this passage, but Moo writes this. Paul's essential teaching about the inability of the Mosaic law to rescue sinful people from spiritual bondage, get this, it is the same whether that bondage is the condition of the unregenerate person who cannot be saved through the law or of the regenerate person who cannot be sanctified and ultimately delivered from the influence of sin by the law. Now, this is important. And this is where this kind of like really heady theology hits the rubber, hits the road. And it's this, because many Christians who I think fully understand that they cannot be saved and justified by their own works, many Christians seek to functionally live by the law. Their Christian lives are essentially summed up and driven by trying to obey the law. Having believed in Christ for their salvation, they now daily present themselves to commands and their internal process looks something like this. <sighs> okay, obey this. <sighs> Don't do this. The subject of our meditation is fundamentally the law. It is its commandments. We say to ourselves again and again, do this, don't do this. So that many Christians use the law as the fundamental tool to sanctify them. And when that doesn't work, they have no other option but to try harder. They say, this time will be different. This time I will be better. But I tell you, this pattern of law-based sanctification only leads to frustration. Maybe you know something of this pattern. Maybe you know something of this frustration. And maybe you have said to yourself, there has got to be another way. Well, thanks be to God, there is another way. And Paul makes that clear in Romans, and it's going to become even more clear in the verses to come. You may remember, if you were here last week, we said that the law is like a home inspector who comes into our house looking for mold. The inspector, the law, 
goes into the house of our heart and life and he discovers. He points out mold. He points out sin that is throughout the home. He might even pull back some boards which triggers the mold up into the air. He points out that the mold is everywhere and he does this with a perfectly accurate assessment. And in addition, he presents to you an ideal picture of what your house should look like when no mold is present. And this is very helpful because without this inspection and assessment and the presentation of the ideal, you and I, we would be content to live in the mold till it killed us. But here's the thing. The inspector himself, the law, does not and cannot do remediation. He cannot remove the mold and cleanse your home. He cannot produce the ideal picture that he presents. And no amount of asking him to keep pointing out the mold, keep presenting me with the ideal, no amount of that work can remove the mold and cleanse the home. He can only give you the card of another. One who can actually accomplish the work. That leads us to the final section of the sermon, right? In which we heed the inspector's recommendation. We ask, who can deliver us from this body of death, this law of dueling laws? If it is not the law itself, then who? Paul's simple answer here is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's only Jesus himself who can accomplish the work of spiritual mold remediation. Only Jesus can do the work of sin remediation in our lives. Only Jesus can provide us with that newness of life that only comes through being united to him. Only Jesus can give us a life that not only has the desire to do what is right, but the power to carry it out. Only Jesus in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, only Jesus by the Spirit can do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what we will see is that in the coming verses of chapter 8, Paul is going to extol over and over and over again the power of Jesus in the life of the believer through the presence of the indwelling Spirit. I would call to your attention now, look at it and read it this week in the week to come. It is worth noting that in the previous seven chapters of Romans, Paul has mentioned the Spirit Four times. And in the next 27 verses of chapter 8, he will mention the Spirit over 20 times. I don't think it's accident. It's because Paul is convinced that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
which is ours through our union with Christ by the Spirit and the indwelling power and life of the Spirit in us. He is convinced that the, that the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is not only able to justify us and send us to heaven someday, but Jesus is actually able to sanctify us today. Jesus is able to lead us in a progressive work of transformation that will ultimately lead to our complete glorification in which our whole selves, body and soul are fully conformed into the likeness of Christ. And so what this means at a very practical level is rather than looking to the law first and foremost, and continually telling ourselves, we must obey the law, we must obey the law. What we must do first and foremost is look to Jesus. For it is Jesus' love for us, demonstrated on the cross, which inflames our love for Him. It is our union with Christ, which supplies us with His life and power, which we experience in greater degree as we commune with Jesus. Through Jesus, we remind ourselves we have died to sin. We've died to the law. We have a new life in which we're free from the necessary dominion of sin. And while we are not yet free from the presence of indwelling sin, we now have Jesus' life and power in us, enabling us to say no to sin and live to righteousness. When we look to the law as the primary means of our sanctification we will be continually frustrated. We will feel stuck in our wretchedness. But when we look to Jesus, by the power of his spirit, Jesus as revealed to us in the word of God, when we commune with Jesus by the presence of the spirit, Jesus provides us with his love and his life and his power for sanctified obedience. Jesus provides us with his life so that in union with him, his life ends up being, being the pattern to which our life is conformed. But get this, since his life was a life that fulfilled the law of God, in the end, our life in Christ will be one that conforms to the moral law of God. So we can speak at another time about the appropriate third use of the law. But that only comes as we are living actively in communion with Jesus. So brothers and sisters, let us look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us look to the indwelling presence of Jesus in us by and through his indwelling spirit. And may we, by the power of Christ, live out more and more the life of the obedience of faith, where we experience continual remediation of our sin. We experience the ongoing renovation of godliness in our lives and the progressive work of sanctification until we arrive in heaven in which we are fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus as we see him as he is. May it be so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for explaining us to us. Thank you for helping us to make sense of our life as believers and the struggles that we face. And help us to see the only answer in life and in death to all of our trials and struggles with sin. It is none other than the Lord Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is not just a principle, not just an idea, not just a concept, but he is indeed a living, active person that we are really and truly and vitally united with by the power of the Spirit. We thank you that the living and active Jesus lives in us by the presence of the Spirit so that it is not merely our willpower trying to obey the law, but the very life of Christ at work in us, working through the ministry of word and spirit, conforming us to the life of Christ, which is a life that fulfills the law. Thank you for your wisdom. Help us to lay hold of it. Help us to love your holiness and to seek it by no other means than through union and communion with Christ by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.